Hey there, ladies and gents. Welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I am your host, Ben Bukowski. As always, we frame this podcast on living your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. I hope you are truly living your greatest life today and every day in the future. And uh, the fact that this podcast gets to be part of your day uh, makes me happy. And the number of messages I get from you guys on a consistent basis uh, is nothing short of remarkable. So thank you for being here. And uh, I do my best to sift through the world's greatest experts and bring you nothing but the brightest and the most inspirational minds. And today's guest is nothing short of one of the brightest and most inspirational minds. He's actually a previous guest of the podcast, and it was one of the most highly downloaded, one of the most uh, requested guests. Philip McKernan joins me again. If you guys aren't familiar with Philip McKernan, you will be by the end of this podcast, and you absolutely love love, love what Philip has to say. And so Philip and I talk a little bit about his journey over the last few years, his evolution as a man, and his direction in life. And Philip is known for helping people uh, find their soul's purpose. And I ask him exactly what that means. And sometimes we are imparted with other people's beliefs. And sometimes we create our own beliefs that sometimes prevent us from truly living the life that we want. Some of us are leading a life of quiet desperation, you know, refusing to step into the discomfort, refusing to step into, you know, those those paths that may be necessary to break out of the current slump that we're in and ultimately pursue something that really lights us up. I truly hope that everyone listening to this podcast does whatever you love, right? What lights your soul on fire? What's the thing that allows you to wake up every day and feel like you've never worked a day in your life where you'd work 15 hours a day, 18 hours a day, and never feel like you're working? I really think that's the goal in life. Because I think of if every one of us was blessed enough to find our way into that, how much of a better world, the place, what the better place the world would be. Um, people would just be happy and there would be less stress and we would all be making more money because we would love what we do. We would never have to go to work, right? It would just be this constant engagement in what we do and what we love. I think that's awesome. And Philip gives us a really amazing framework on how to discover that for yourself. And if you listen to the previous podcast, you already know how awesome Philip is. If it's your first time being exposed to Philip, I'm sure by the end of it, you're going to want to go back and listen to the other one, which we did, I believe it was 2018. I think it was also even the Muscle Expert podcast before we came, became Muscle Intelligence, uh, but an absolutely phenomenal podcast. And also, if you're someone who aspires to be the best version of yourself, something I did for myself in 2020, the beginning of 2020, was I signed up for a coaching program. It was a 10-month coaching program inspired by one of our guests, Brian Johnson. If you guys remember Brian Johnson, Brian is the owner and creator of a company called, previously called Philosopher's Notes. If you've heard me talk about this before, if you've never checked it out on YouTube, uh, YouTube was one of my greatest resources in my transformation from what we'll call uh, mindless and stressed and allowing life to ultimately throw me where it wanted to go rather than being the creator of my life. I felt like a victim to it. Philosopher's Notes was one of my resources through my transition. And that transition existed from 2007 to about 2000, probably 13, and is still going. Um, and it was a resource for me because it allowed me to, to reference books and uh, learn a lot at a really, really accelerated rate. 
work. So what Brian does is he, he reads some of the best books on the planet. I believe there's over 600 books now within his community. And he gives you the five big ideas from that book, which are so incredibly valuable. And then you can decide if you want to read a little bit more and, and pick up the book or that you've got enough. And this is maybe for you or not for you. And that resource was one of the greatest catalysts for me, ultimately changing as a man and stepping into someone who, you know, I, I would view now as someone who's educated and someone who thinks well and someone ultimately who is not a victim to life. And all of those books that Brian imparted on me were truly a big, big part of that uh, process. So uh, I'm super blessed and super grateful to announce Optimize as one of the show sponsors for the Muslim Intelligence Podcast. You guys can go to optimize.me, optimize.me slash muscle and get a, a membership for free. I know I've paid hundreds of dollars uh, per year to this website in the past because it's just so valuable. There's also so many other things that exist on this website. Head over to optimize.me slash muscle and get hooked up with a membership for free. And also here's the kicker, guys. You can get a this course that I told you about, this coaching program, this 10-month coaching program, which I paid well over $1,000 for when I did in 2020. And yes, I paid. I didn't get anything gifted to me. Um, is now on sale right now only for $300 and you can bring a friend for free. I absolutely love what Brian's doing. Brian truly is on a mission to give back to the world and ultimately allow people to uh, thrive. So sorry about my ramble, guys. I really wanted to give these guys a shout out because I really believe in the product. I think you should all head over to optimize.me at very least take advantage of the free membership. And otherwise, um, definitely, definitely, definitely check out the coaching. For $300, you'll do it for a week and get way more than the amount that you invested in it back in as far as value. Enjoy the podcast with Philip McKernan. How has COVID uh, affected your direction? Um, I mean, 95% of our business is live events. So it's had a, a, a massive effect um, in so many ways. And in other ways, I asked a question to a group of clients once, and it's, it's, it's a very strange question. If, if COVID was just happening to you, like you're the only person in the world that COVID was happening to, which might sound like a very self-centered question, what would it be trying to tell you? And I also asked that question of myself and it was trying to, you know, the, the opportunity, the invitation has asked or forced us to, continue, to, to to look at our lives, to examine our lives in a different way. So while our business has been dramatically affected, arguably in a negative way, it's allowed us to take a step back and begin to understand what it is we want to do and who do we want to be in the world, mm-hmm. not just now, but in the future. And this castle and the move to Ireland to create a, a center of healing and growth in the future. Um, I think if COVID didn't happen, it wouldn't have happened. And I'd love to say it's the opposite because I want my ego wants everyone to think I'm an inspiration and I'm this and I'm a leader and everything else. But the truth is, I don't believe I would be sitting here today without COVID. So true. I think it's the, the time to be introspective and the time to decide who you want to spend that time with, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. like you, 95% of my business was, was travel. Same idea is like, just stopped. <laughs> like, yeah. what do I do? Shift quick. And it's been a blessing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So how has it shifted for you? So you're one of the most uh, downloaded episodes we had in the past. We had you on the previous podcast and uh, everyone just loved it. So I was like, we got to get Philip back on to talk about what you talk about. So tell me how the business is uh, shifted for you. So 
In some ways, I mean, we put all our eggs really in one basket, and that was live intimate gatherings, you know, anywhere between 12 and 20 people um, sitting in magnificent landscapes anywhere in the world, for that matter. Um, but I've been going to Ireland, bringing people to the west coast of Ireland for uh, 12 years now. And uh, what, what one thing that's, that's, that's shifted or solidified rather than shifted is that I absolutely am more bullish now in live intimate events now more than ever before and yep. um it's not based on on marketing it's not based on on research it's just based on my own kind of gut and my, and my own kind of understanding of what's happening in the world so what we're doing is playing i've always been playing the long game with this work i'm going to be doing this work to the day i die so i don't feel an urgency and a panic to put bombs on seats to to squeeze as much as i can from the business to to, to do that um, so that's probably been the biggest shift, even though that may not sound very profound. I brought some stuff online. I think what's shifted is the conversation. I think there's a degree of urgency. I was often the guy that people would come to when the shit hit the fan, when there was something wrong. Um, you know, sometimes people go to a chiropractor when they're in pain. Uh, some people go to a nutritionist when they have a health scare. And, you know, if I can help people, I'll take them at any at any point to some extent. I think what's happening now is we're getting a type of individual stepping into the work who wants to be more proactive, arguably forced by this introspection, as we talked about. But that's that's exciting. And in and the conversation is deeper. It's taking less time to get to what I call the core stuff, you know, through all the noise of, of you know, our lives to right to the core of, OK, who am I? And what am I on this earth to do? And how can I leave this world in a better place than I found it? And I just find the conversation has shifted, whether it's me, whether it's the people coming, or whether it's a combination, it doesn't really matter. But that's very rewarding. Yeah, it's true. And I feel like, you know, maybe it's just the time alone, right? It's, it's the time in those relationships that you're kind of forced to be in, right? Sometimes mm -hmm. relationships, whether it be with a partner or with, with children, Sometimes people avoid that. So now when you're kind of forced to be at home with those people that are closest to you, it really starts to shine a light on on strengths and weaknesses and really all of it, right? So it's like yeah. you're, you're walking around with your with your parts exposed that you don't want to see. And sometimes it doesn't feel good. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's probably likely what's, what uh, is inspiring people to seek you out. Because, you know, like me, uh, I think many people out there are looking to find that soul's purpose. And that seems to be uh, why they come to you, right? Very much so. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah. So, you know, we talked about this last time and I still want to go a little bit deeper because I think it'll help the audience understand is like, what does that process look like to, because, you know, for me, I love what I do. I feel like I've never worked a day in my life, but I also feel like there's more. I, I sometimes feel like I play small. So I'm curious um, what you go through as far as a uh, process with anyone who's standing in front of you. Yeah, well, I listen to language. So, so if somebody, and I'll, I'll try to make it less kind of personal, if you like, and I appreciate your, your honesty there. If someone did come to me and say, listen, I'm playing small in the world. And I do hear that quite a lot. And I would have used that narrative and that conversation and that language myself towards myself. Um, one of the opportunities is to take that language and run with it, if you like, or like a client who says to me, I want to double my business. And I'll, I, you could take that and run with it. I have a tendency to stop and listen to the language and go into the language a little bit in order to, to inform us of what lies behind that. So I would say to somebody in a business context, I would say, why? And they'd go, well, because I want to grow. And I'd go, great, why? And I would, I would want them to almost explain to me 
And it would have to be pretty much bulletproof why they want to build their business in order to support them with that, even though I'm not a business coach and never claimed to be. But someone came to me and said they, they play small in the world. I want to understand what they mean by that. And so, is it actually true? For me, it's nothing to do with business. It's to do with like, I have, I have this inner knowing that um, I, I'm here to inspire more people or, or support more people in, in living their inspired journey. So I've been like you've been through many challenging um, circumstances in life. And that's just given me this, this ability to um, understand, listen and give back. And so sometimes I feel like, again, they don't want to make this about me, but I think there's a lot of people out there who probably are experiencing some limitations in, I just feel like I'm not expressing what's in me, or maybe there's some inadequacy, or maybe there's some, you know, unconscious blocks or sabotage, things like that. So yeah, I'm curious what that would look like for you as far as just like making them describe it. Yeah. So what I would do is I, I, I'm, I'm curious about the small piece because it seems quite judgmental, but let's leave that aside for a moment. Um, one of the things I'm a big advocate is going back into people's past. So the first thing I do with a private client, I don't work with many private clients, but if I do, or even in a, in a retreat environment, I'll bring people in back into their past, into their childhood, and I will get them to look and examine their childhood, perhaps in a way they've never done before. And people go, no, no, you don't understand, Philip. I want to go forward. I want to do this. I want to do I say, great, trust me. Just trust this process. Mm-hmm. We'll go back into the past. We'll begin to understand, um, you know, what they went through and what form to they are today. We'll begin to examine today to see where they're in alignment, where they're not, and then begin to vision the future. And that's the very simple process, very, very basic process. What I'm looking for, or more importantly, what I'm hoping they're looking for is some insights into the things that shape them in a positive way and sometimes in a negative way. If someone wants to make the world a better place or help people, the holy grail, in my personal opinion, is to take the very thing that caused you the most pain the thing that hurts you the most, the greatest gift lies right next to your deepest wound is, is, a, is a statement I made through the One Last Talk book. And begin to, to, to look at that. I had a gentleman literally yesterday, and I can share this because I'm not going to use his name. And he um, experienced some serious violence in his life. Like he, 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 he hurt a lot of people. And he, and, he, and he explained to me why. He was an alcoholic. He, he was hurt. He was in pain. He was in fear and everything else. And he is deeply, still deeply ashamed of that story and that part of his, you know, his life. And I said, how often do you talk about it? And what have you done with that? And he said, well, I've done some therapy. I've tried to forgive myself. I said, yeah, but how are you going to help humanity with that story? He goes, Philip, that's a, a shameful story. That's going to have no relevance. I said, why don't you go into high schools and speak in rough, tough and posh areas? Because I don't think it's mutually exclusive to, you know, a, a tough area of the city. And talk about how you got lost and how you turned to violence and why and how alcoholism showed up in your life. And you take the very thing that you're most ashamed of, you bring it out into the world, you shine a light on it in in front of everyone and you use it for good. And that is the only time that you can fully begin to heal, let go and accept your story when you start to see that it has goodness in the world for others. And at the end of the call, I'm not joking, he was crying with joy because somebody gave him permission to do that. And yet intuitively, I think deep down, he knew that. I think one of the things I'd be curious to, to kind of investigate is like, what was the, what was the thing that allowed him to recognize he was doing this, right? So many people are lost in the act of doing, maybe they realize they're doing something wrong, but having the awareness to uh, maybe the vulnerability to stop and change I think that may be the biggest challenge of all, right? Like when you're in it and you're, you're abusing people, that's just, you're just 
maybe taken on as that's my identity and it's their fault, right? I'm doing the right thing. But mm-hmm. to have that kind of self-awareness to step back and say, gosh, I, I, what am I doing? Like I'm hurting people and being vulnerable enough with yourself to stop. I'd be very curious what the, what the precipice for that was for that man. Yeah, I mean, I've worked in, in maximum security prisons, so I think I have a, I, I don't claim to be an expert in anything in the world for that matter, but um, I, I have certainly have an insight into what is the, the catalyst that gets people to stop and change, and sometimes there is none. Um, but generally speaking, there's a, there's a point at which we hit a precipice of absolute, uncontrollable, overwhelming, consuming pain. And you know, I think it manifests itself, whether it's in a, in a, in a physical element or whether it's a, a breakdown, whether it's a dysfunction of, of relationships around us. We finally hit a point where we're almost exhausted by ourselves. We're exhausted by our own behaviors, our own destruction. And there's a point where no matter what you've done, you have a choice to, 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 to change that, to, 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 to do something different. Sometimes people just don't believe that they're good enough in this world. There's a theory about suicide that it's one of the most selfish acts in the world. I was introduced to a different perspective on suicide many, many years ago by a gentleman called Professor Anthony Clare, who was a very famous psychiatrist in Europe to the stars, to the top singers, the top sports people. And I dated his daughter and traveled around the world. And I'll never forget Anthony saying to him one day, you know, suicide is not necessarily what the public think. Sometimes people who commit suicide and take their lives actually believe the world is a better place without them. And I'd never, ever heard that perspective. I'm not saying it's okay to do it. What I'm saying is that it gave me an insight. Sometimes when you feel that you have no value and you're worthless and you've created destruction, sometimes you think that is your identity. That is, that is all you're going to do with the world. And sometimes it takes one person to get behind you and believe in you. It takes one person to see something in you that you cannot or are unwilling to see in yourself. And that's the goodness. That's the big When I told that man yesterday, I did, I'm going to share, I've never shared this before. I've never done this before. I asked him a really bizarre question yesterday. I said, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to make a statement. And then I'm going to ask you a question. I've never done this before. And as he told me his story, he stopped. And I said, okay, you're ready? And he goes, yeah. I said, you are a really good man. And I stopped. And then I followed it up with, when I say that, how do you receive my words? Do you believe they're genuine? And how does that statement relate to how you hold yourself in the world? In other words, do you believe me? And do you actually believe that about yourself? And when I said it to him, you were a good man, you, you, you'd swear someone just gave him $7 million in cash, the keys to the house of his dreams, and forgave him for every misdemeanor he'd ever done in his life. I mean, it was, I, I, that's not even capturing his face. Not many people see the goodness in him because he doesn't want them to see it because he doesn't believe it exists. So therefore, his identity becomes the asshole. The identity becomes the person who can never quite make it in business. Identities, we, we, we attach ourselves to identities of success and of failure all of the time. What does it look like for a man like that who doesn't, t- so let's say he does believe he's a good man. What if everyone else around him is bad, right? It's like, I'm, I'm a really good person, but everyone else around me is an asshole. And that's why I hit them. They did something wrong, right? It's the victim mentality. So that, that was like a very different flip, right? It's like, you could tell him a good, he's a good man. He'd go, yeah, I'm a really good man. And everyone else around me is an idiot. And that's why I beat him up. Yeah, he didn't. He, uh, he, he, he owns his stuff. And I think that's true change. I mean, I don't think the change comes unless right. 
they really begin to see the fact that they they have the contributing you know behavior around there. Right, so around is that the situation where like if someone doesn't see the fact that it's their responsibility that they're just not ready to change or is there some way to get someone out of that victim mentality and have them ultimately step into taking ownership for their life and then step into you know the light that lives inside I think it's a great question. I think, can you get somebody out? I'll answer it direct quick. Can you get somebody out of that victim mentality? No, I don't believe you can get somebody out. I think you can help them get themselves out, but no, you cannot get them out because they're not ready to hear that. They they need to be able to blame somebody for their actions and therefore they're not ready to make the the real change. Um, you know, people today are blaming politicians, they're blaming this, they're blaming that. Um, you know, in Ireland, we had a we had a whole you know sequence of people blaming the banks for giving them too much money during the boom, and and there was the banks' fault. And yes, the banks have a degree of responsibility, but every man, woman, and child that that took a mortgage in this country signed the dotted line and chose to either read and ignore or not read the small print. So we, we if we don't take ownership ourselves for the decisions that we make, to some extent, it's very very difficult to crawl out of that hole. And and not crawl into another one of being a victim in another aspect of our lives. Very curious what your thoughts are around why someone goes into that victim hole. And like, is it just the refusal to accept the pain that will come with accepting responsibility in, in your experience? Well, I'll make it personal. I mean, for the longest time, I used to very subtly blame the education system for my dyslexia and the pain that came with that. It wasn't the dyslexia, it was the pain. It was being ostracized within the, you know, or feeling ostracized or alone in the school and the system and everything else. And it was easier for me to blame the schooling system because it meant really I didn't necessarily have to then do the things that I could do to change my own life. Right. It was easier for me to tell the world, and I'll give you an exact quote. I used to be, I used to say all the time, I know I can't write, I'm dyslexic. And I woke up one day, and I'll never forget, it was literally, sometimes you say, oh, it was a day, and sometimes it's not a day, it's six months of realizations or 10 years, but this was mm-hmm. actually a day. And I woke up and I said, oh, no, I can write, I just can't spell. And I don't think I can do anything but the spelling piece, like genuinely, unless I, and I don't want to, because there's, there's, there's no need today. But I woke up, and it was a combination of years of work, a combination of you know degrees of therapy and work and counseling and coaching from others getting me to awaken to the fact that I can spend the rest of my life blaming somebody and it makes me feel a little bit good and off the hook, or I can begin to shine a light on myself without the judgment, just the realization. And then I can truly make that change for myself. And it was that day I started to write. And most mornings I get up now and I write some 95% of the stuff I don't publish, but I write for Philip McKernan. I never imagined I'd do that. So in a way, we think it's easier to blame other people. Sometimes we don't even know we're doing it because it's so ingrained inside of us and we've been witnessing it for so long. And yet when we can own it without the judgment, the, 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 the sense of empowerment is, is quite extraordinary in terms of our ability and the speed in which we can shift our lives. That's the other thing. The speed in which we can change is, is astronomical. Yeah, we make excuses around a lot of things, don't we? Like time and genetics and the government and finances and all of it. And uh, people just don't understand it. Just simply taking responsibility for it is the very thing that allows you to begin the change. Correct. Correct. Can you tell me about the process of creating your One Last Talk? Yeah, so One Last Talk is... 
basically it's it's very very simple um when people we invite people to come and do a one last talk um i think the mis one of the mistakes we made was we assumed that one last talk should be a live event um in a, in a theater or in, in a you know a restaurant or a cafe or whatever and while it, it has an application really we got a little bit lost in the power of why we did this one last talk is a very deep in many respects therapeutic process or cathartic process that will allow you to understand who you are and who you want to be in the world to some extent it allows you to speak out into the world and let the world know who you are and um it doesn't matter where you do it as long as you do it and give it to at least one other person so we bring people through this journey where they write a one last uh, message and we encourage people to write that message one of you know kind of almost a lecture almost like a you know, you should do this and you should not have unprotected say, you shouldn't take drugs and you, you know, and, you know, Donald Trump should do this and global warming and all the things that are floating around the world that are very important to some, but they're somewhat external. And even though they do have an impact on us individually, and then we get them to write a one last letter and we give them a few more different instructions that it's the one last letter you'll ever write, who will you write it to and what will you say? But it's not about lecturing them about any behavior in their life or talking about what you see in the world and how the world should change. And then finally, we come to the talk. And the talk is essentially the invitation of the ask is you're not allowed to share anything other than a, a part of your personal narrative, typically something that up to today you didn't see any value in. You didn't actually see it had any value other than demeaning you, uh, detracting from you, or creating some judgment towards yourself. So the mother who still held a lot of shame about her son committing suicide, when she shared that talk, and it was a big process to get her to share it, when she shared that talk, two things happened. One is she released it into the world. Two is she gave parents uh, this incredible gift of getting in touch with something so dramatic that most parents can't comprehend, but then give them the choice to make the change, changes that she wished she had made earlier on in the process. And number three, actually, was she actually got her other son back because when her son committed suicide, she was estranged from her other son because he lost his mother and his brother because she just emotionally became unavailable. And she recognized him for the first time, and I know that for certain because we've talked about it. So that's that's very, very short and sweet. It's it's a way for you to share a part of your personal narrative with the world uh, that perhaps the world does not know in, in the hope to show more of you to the world. And the irony of it is the thing we're most afraid of is the judgment. And it's actually the, the opposite that happens in my experience. Very interesting. Do you ever run into people who have unconscious blocks around those areas in their life? Meaning they just like tend to not want to bring them up or they tend to forget that ever come up all the time yeah all the time so what's your strategy to overcome it i'm not sure it's a strategy as such um i think the process has the i, I think anybody that's done a one last talk many of them go to a very very deep honest place but there's often a number of people who said if i knew it was going to be like this i would have gone deeper so I think also to be a little bit more compassionate to people, I think that, yeah, there's this deeper, deeper, deeper narrative that people have that perhaps would be the most spectacular one last talk. But we encourage them not to necessarily rip off the band-aid that you can do one last talk twice, three times, 10 times. 
you know, it's it's a process that it's easy to follow. Um, and we encourage them to go to the edge, but not jump off the edge because we want to we want to keep them safe as well. But I think in the end of the day, when they start to trust the environment, they try to start to trust the people and they start to trust themselves. It's interesting how the truth starts to emerge. I often find in a coaching context, people will throw me a crumb because they want to see if I'm capable or able to accept the cake. And what I mean by that is they'll share a truth with me and they're watching for my reaction. They're waiting for me to judge it by a question, by silence, by what I say or what I don't. And then they'll present me with the entire cake, the thing that's their darkest, deepest secret, which some people listening or watching in this in the future go, why would you share your darkest, deepest secret with some guy in Ireland? It doesn't matter who you're sharing with. When you share something in the right environment with me or otherwise, it's it's a burden that you just let you begin to let go of. It's a, it, it 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 loosens its grip on its ability to control your life through the lens of sabotage. And shame is a is a really powerful destructive force if we choose to ignore it or not deal with it as we move through through life. One of the most interesting things we talked about last time was this reality of so many people out there are living deeply ingrained in a world that they don't love, in a, in a job they don't enjoy, maybe it's a relationship they don't love, and uh, you had a process around calling them out and then inviting them to change. And I'd love to have you walk through some examples or how you would do that, because it, it's definitely a frightening thing. Say someone's making a you know a really good living or they've got a you know a quote unquote safe relationship. Um, that's there's a lot of potential negatives that come with that, right? There's a lot of potential um, challenges that come with changing all that stuff. And I'm curious what your advice is to those people. Yeah, well, I, I encourage them not to change it all but, uh, initially. I, I think there was a time where maybe, you know, I was in a more insecure place or maybe I was in a more impatient place and I wanted everybody to change everything overnight. Um, and, I, and I think that's the wrong advice. I think it's, it's beginning to shine a light. It takes a lot of courage to examine our lives and be honest with ourselves, whether we're in the right relationship, we're living in the right city, we're doing the right work, we're in the right relationship with ourselves and our own skin. It takes a lot of courage to ask the question and be okay with the answer that you don't necessarily want. And the way I encourage people to do it now is to begin to consider it rather than a light switch to turn it on or turn it off, is to begin to turn the dial and begin to examine we're also very uncomfortable with the middle ground. We're very uncomfortable with the gap. We're very uncomfortable as humans with the unknown. And as soon as we become aware of that, let's just use Toronto as an example, you become aware that you don't really want to live in Toronto. The very first question I get from people is, okay, it's not Toronto. Well, where would I move? Because I, I don't know. And I go, hang on. How long have you lived in Toronto? Oh, well, 45 years. And I go, and when did you realize Toronto, or admit for the first time Toronto may not be the place for you? Well, today on the call with you, Philip, I go, great. So for 45 years, you've, you've been in a city. It's part of your identity. You've been telling yourself you love it. It's, it's the place for you. It's the place you're never going to leave. It's whatever narratives you've told yourself to justify your existence there. You've just realized, or not even realized, but admitted for the first time. Now, why don't you sit with that for at least a week before you do anything, right. or a month, or two months? on vacations. So we want to jump to the next thing. And what we do is often when someone's on the precipice, and this is, I want to be very delicate with this because I, I want people to understand what I'm saying rather than take it too personally. When we're on the precipice of change or when our soul is starting to whisper 
and we're not listening. And then it starts to raise its voice a bit. And then it starts to shout and scream at us. The very first thing most of us do, buy a puppy, have a baby, or build an extension in our home. Now, I'm being a little bit facetious. I'm being a little bit of an asshole to make a point. There's nothing wrong with buying puppies, having babies, or building extensions, unless we're doing it as a distraction. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of us do that. We look to something to distract ourselves from the feeling with, that our soul is starting to wake up to. And if we could just slow down and say, what is that nickel? Do I really want to build an extension? Or is it a form of distraction which does two things? One, hopefully take my mind off what's going on. And secondly, resign me to stay in Toronto for another 6, 12 or 18 months. Um, in the same way people say to me sometime, I want to I uh, amplify my business. I want to grow my business, whatever. And I'll go, great, where are you living? And I'm only picking on Toronto because that's where you are. No disrespect to Toronto. When I'm in Toronto, do you like it? Oh, no, I don't know. I don't like Toronto. I don't want to be living here. And I say, well, why do you want to build a business? there? And the answer they'll always give me is, oh, when I build a business and I make enough money, then I'll have the freedom to go and do what I want to do. And I go, no, no, no. Where you are energetically in any relationship to the work we do, the place we live, the people in our lives and ourselves, if we get that right first or in addition to, it makes our business direction strategically otherwise a lot more smooth so to me just going back very finally to clarify is, is this idea of when you realize or begin to realize something don't move too quickly to change it because typically what happens is this we say okay it's not toronto it's vegas we go to vegas we we rent a place we buy a place it turns out to be an absolutely unmitigated disaster we come back to Toronto and say, well, that was a failed experiment or whatever. And then we internalize it like it's not, it's not where I live. It's me. I'm the problem. I'm fucking broken, uh, which is not a, never the case, really. What I say to people is just give yourself permission to sit with it. Then experiment with the expectation that it's not Vegas either, because it's typically not where we are. It's typically not the place we think it is. It's what lies beyond both. And that statement is true, particularly for careers and impact. It's not what we're doing. It's not what we think it is. There's something that lies beyond both of those that we cannot see right now or we're afraid to see right now. And that's where the real juice comes in. That's where it gets really exciting. And I love people to play with that idea, like a child rather than... Open it up for me, man. What, what, is, what lies beyond, right? What are your, in your experience can lie beyond that? Well, I had a, I had a, literally had a call yesterday uh, with a beautiful lady, and um, she just, when I say beautiful, she just had this incredible energy, and I love watching people's faces. I love listening. I love watching their eyes. I love listening to them explain. And God love this woman. I loved listening to her, trying to justify and rationalize what she was doing professionally, and she did such a good job. And I say that, it might sound so condescending, but she did such a good job that she almost convinced me that she was doing the right thing. And she wanted me so badly to tell her that she was on the right path. What she essentially wanted me to do was to help her with her internal blocks to climb the corporate ladder. We eventually uncovered, or she allowed me to see, that her real aspiration is to create her own business. So it's not what she was doing is the thing that she's destined to do. It's not even creating her own business, which she's not clear on. That's another reason why a lot of people don't open their own businesses because they say, oh, I just don't know what it looks like. And I go, well, how much time do you spend dreaming and contemplating that and really, really giving yourself true, unconditional permission to imagine what that could be? 
well, in between, you know, emails and stuff like that. In other words, you don't really because there's something else got played. Beyond all of that, she's an artist. And the thing she really wants to do, and when she started talking this, the tears started to flow. The thing she really wants to do is she wants to paint. But the narrative is artists are poor. Artists don't make money. And she has attached her identity in the world. Two things she's done. One is her identity in the world um, as it relates to success to her monetary value, which I understand. And by the way, in society, we get a lot of rewards for our talents. But the, but the universe, sorry, not the universe, the universe rewards us massively, but society doesn't necessarily reward us greatly for our gifts in the world. The other thing was that was the money piece, and there was another piece there that's really, really, really important. Yes. So the other one, and this is where you go back into your childhood. And I said to this lady, I said, can we just go back into your childhood? And I, I don't want to linger too long. But I want to, I'm curious about your drive. You know, she's doing an Ironman. She's doing this. She's doing that. She's doing the other. And often that's punishment. It's not actual achievement. It's like I'm trying to beat myself up. And there's this idea of punishment in the world that I've been really working on a lot recently within myself, writing. And and uh, she said, listen, I'm, I'm one of, I'm going to make some of this stuff up. So it's not uh, this, this lady doesn't feel like I'm exposing her, but I'm one of you know, six kids. And I was the one that was never destined to do anything great. And I said, so how much does that drive you today? She says, massively. I want to prove to my dad and my, my siblings that I'm good and that I earned it myself. So she's been driven by an engine that's flawed. It's an old diesel engine that's not working. She needs to upgrade it to something that's a bit more sustainable and maybe a little bit healthier and a bit more gentle on her and, 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 and everyone around her. So when you start to layer it back and you see the real motivations, it's fascinating. And that was only then she gave herself permission or herself permission to admit the artistry inside of her and then her fears around it. So interesting. It sounds like it's like a, a dialogue you're having with your own values. There's like, so you have to understand the hierarchy of values and like, so this job or where you are now is, is fulfilling certain values, but maybe not others. So I think it's, it's interesting for us to even give ourselves the space to explore all of the things we value. And then, you know, rather than taking on someone else's value or society's values, like you're saying, society doesn't value art or doesn't value our skills, just allowing it to be our own and, and, and expressing that light within you maybe allows someone to truly step into their greatness, right? And, and that will be often recognized. I think the inability to dive all the way into your skills or your great is why it isn't recognized, right? Because when someone is really good at something and they're really, you know, all in, you see it, I see it, and we're like, wow, like that inspires me. And people want to be like that, right? People are drawn to that. But when yeah. someone's half in, then it's it's uh challenge or it's maybe not as as appealing, it's not as, as much of a draw. Yeah. And and one thing just uh, just to, to to layer in on that values piece is um many people say to me, well, hang on a second, I'm doing something that's not really the thing I want to do. But it allows me the, the opportunity or the freedom to experience my values. So, for example, I'm doing something I don't really want to do because it gives me the financial freedom, which is one of my big values. And I'll often look at people and go, well, you don't look free to me. You don't sound free to me. Yes, you have the choice to book a trip somewhere. Yes, you can write a check for an Airbnb. Or yes, you can you know, buy a new car tomorrow morning. But th that's, a, that's a freedom of, of, of choice 
in one sense, but it's not a freedom of spirit. It's not a freedom of self. It's not a freedom of being. And when you can get people to begin to understand the difference and feel the difference, I think one of the things, again, like this, we're not, in, we're not we don't like the gap. We don't want to feel the pain. So people will say things like to me, well, let's just say hypothetically, Philip, I, I don't like living in Toronto. Well, then what do I do? And I go, no, no, hang on. We need to establish if Toronto is the place for you. Well, okay, based on this conversation, it's not. Okay, well, what's the cost? Well, I suppose I'm just not maybe operating at 100%, maybe 95. No, you could be operating at 25. We're never going to be able to know exactly, but I want to know exactly where you are because the level of discomfort that you become honest with yourself around is often the differentiator in terms of the action that you take. Because if it's if moving from Toronto to Vegas is only going to squeeze me an extra 5% optimization or energy, ah, it's probably hardly worth it. All the packing and all the bullshit and the visas and everything else. But if I begin to see that I'm really out of alignment living in Toronto and it's affecting my creativity, it's affecting my ability to be intimate, it's affecting my ability to you know, put, put a value on my own skin and work out, and it's affecting this and it's affecting, I'll go, holy shit, I'm not moving tomorrow. I'm, I'm, I'm on the way today. There's an urgency to that without necessarily the panic, if that makes any sense. Totally. That's such a great example. I love the idea of like the perceived or the self-created freedom versus freedom in reality. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of us are living that because of the expectations society puts on us. And, and I'm probably guilty of this myself, is like you have this persona that you have to maintain. So, you know, you're making all this money. You have to maintain this external persona. But in reality, like personally, I just crave like the most simple life. I'm like, I don't need any <laughs> of this shit at all. But will that take away my ability to make money to, to sustain my family, right? Like if there's that's the dialogue going on in my head sometimes. I'm sure there's other people out there like that. Like sometimes, I mean, got right? Like it's Me like, too. It's I mean, simple. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I will say this, and, and, and you know, when I look back, on the pre-COVID lifestyle that I had. And, you know, I, I, I really do genuinely believe I'm, in, I'm a more authentic, genuine person than I've ever been in my life. Um, but there's so much more to, for me to go. There's so much more levels for me to work through. And I was flying to this conference and flying to that conference and doing this keynote and doing that keynote. And don't get me wrong, and in so many ways, it was great. But I was I was also very attached to the 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 perceived importance of all of that, and you know I, I and and this is where I, I I'm getting a little embarrassed, and that is you know when I get my new upgraded you know um, air, um, airline tags and what status I was in and platinum and premium and diamond and gold and whatever other levels there were and multiple different airlines, I get these in I'd be so excited. And I look back and I can genuinely look back and it's not a lot of judgment. It's more of a, oh my God, I'm 48 years old. And thank thankfully, I got, I've gotten to experience this part of it. I now look at those cards. No judgment to anybody on the call or listening to this or anything in the future or whatever. But for me, only for Philip, I look at these cards now and they're just representative of miles and hours and days away from my family and myself to some extent. And I remember very close to the pandemic kicking off, there was a keynote I did somewhere, I can't remember, I'll just say Vegas, because we were talking about it, and it possibly was. And I remember, I never, first of all, I said, I'm not gonna stand on stage today. I don't know, I did not wanna stand on stage, much to the frustration of the camera people and the lights people. 
And people in the audience noticed this, that you didn't stand on the stage. You just walked around and you sat on the edge of the stage and whatever. I just didn't want to be on the stage. It was, it was an energy of feeling for me. And the second thing I said was, by the way, just so you know, if you don't see me at the dinner tonight, the speaker dinner, I have been invited. And while you all look like amazing people, you're not quite as amazing than three beautiful people that I have at home. And if you don't mind, I'm going to choose them over you tonight. And I'm literally not exaggerating when I say I almost had a full standing ovation. Like people got up and kind of clapped. Not because I was amazing, whatever. I think it was a reminder. And I was unapologetic in it. But yet before I thought, no, I need to be at the, at the dinner and I need to meet people. And it's important to be seen to do I have all these stories to justify. Right. And the last thing I'll say is, and I'll make it personal so it doesn't feel like I'm judging any, anybody. I don't think workaholics are addicted to work. I don't think workaholics love the office. I just think they don't know how to be at home. And I think to some extent, I was the same, that I was uncomfortable at home. I didn't see that I had value at home. My value was in the sky. Because when I was in the sky, I was getting paid, in some cases, a lot of money so I could provide opportunities for my family. And yet, if you ask my kids and my wife, they didn't want me in the sky. They wanted me beside them. Because actually, I'm not bad to be around some of the time. <laughs> some of the time. <laughs> right. So two questions come out of that. Uh, the first one, do you believe you have to experience the first mountain in order to ascend the second mountain? And when I say the first mountain, what I'm referring to specifically is you know, you got to sit in first class, you got to have the gold, the platinum, the diamond class, right? You get to have the money, you get to live in the home. Do you feel you have to experience it before you can learn that you don't need it? Or can people pass that? And the other question is, uh, how do you personally explore your authenticity? You can answer those, however, uh, whatever order you think is uh, better. Mm. God, here I was thinking this was going to be fun. Holy crap. Um, I'm joking. Um, no, I don't. I, I don't think you need to climb the first mountain in order to have experienced it, in order to realize that you don't need it or want it. Um, I don't know who said this, but I, I believe it's um, there's a there's a well-known person said, I wished everyone beco could become a millionaire so they realized that they didn't actually need some variation of that. Maybe Jim Carrey, I can't remember. So um, I think, no, I, I really don't. Um, I think there's things that I do in my life right now. Something didn't come to mind right now that I think I've, I have a feeling that there's things I do in my life that are not as a result of, of having done something. It's as, as a result of watching other people do it and, and maybe choosing to learn that lesson a little bit sooner, if you like. Um, Is there something about having to like prove your manhood around like accomplishing things? I think, you know, ascending some proverbial mountain, right? I, I don't know. I'm just curious what your thoughts are. Is like, you know, a boy growing into a man, there's some unconscious drive to prove yourself, prove your worth, prove your, your place in society. I'm curious if you believe that's reality or how we can maybe help young people or, or, or people currently who feel like they're still ascending the first mountain to realize that they're good enough. And it doesn't mean you have to accomplish something outside of yourself to prove anything to anyone. Curious what your thoughts are. Yeah, a question I often ask people is who who are you seeking validation from mm -hmm. today? And and notice the question is not are you seeking validation from somebody, and if Ooh, it is, yeah. who are you seeking validation from? And any entrepreneur, and I think 
sorry, I'll actually won't I won't say that because I don't think it's true. I was going to say I think it's more a male challenge in the leadership and entrepreneurial world than I'm in. But actually, I don't necessarily even believe that. I think it's both male and female. Um, maybe it's just trying to prove different things, seeking you know validation from from people around them, being seen by people. And I've seen people build entire empires because they want their father to come to them, put their arm around them, and say, "I see you, I love you, and I'm proud of you." Yeah. Or some yeah. variation of those. I see sports stars. I work in the world of soccer, a little bit of golf, but primarily soccer. And I see soccer players at very high levels. And they're still seeking and looking for it. One goalkeeper who said to me, the fear I have of making a mistake is growing as the season comes upon us. And he's a you know well-seasoned goalkeeper. And I said, same as every other season. It's not it's a bit different this season. It just seems to be amplified. It seems to be a little bit more in my face. And I just walked down a beach. It was at a preseason camp. I was spending the, the week with the players. And I just basically walked down the beach with them. And I said, so is it anything to do with family? Or I said, I knew you'd ask that question. No, nothing to do with my dad, mom, nothing to do with anybody. And I said, okay, cool. I said, do you want to play a little role, role play? And he says, yeah. I said, so you're in a game. And I said, it's a little bit breezy. The ball is curled in from the corner. You jump for the ball. You know you're the tallest guy on the pitch. Maybe bar the other goalkeeper. You know you can raise your hands and get. This shouldn't be a problem for you. But you just mistime your turn, your, your jump. And as you're jumping in the air, you know the ball is moving in the air with the wind. You miss the ball. The oncoming attacker heads the ball into the net. And as you hit the ground and your face hits the dirt and you hear the opposition, the visitors screaming because they just scored and you've made a mistake, as you lift your face out of the dirt, who's the one face in the world you do not want to see in the audience, the crowd, the stadium, excuse my language, he just said, you fucker. He said, it's my dad. And he is so once his dad. But yet, we'll, it's so interesting that I can't tell you how many clients have come to me over the years going, yeah, I'd love to work. I'd love to, you know, I'd love to have a better relationship with my mom, a better relationship with my dad, my business partner, my lover, whatever. And here's all the reasons why it's dysfunctional. Here's all the reasons it's not going great. And they can talk for hours, days. They could write Dreams of material. And they've all the data to prove, by the way, they're not going to change probably as well, which is a separate issue. But when I turn to them, they go, so what do you want the relationship to look like? Exactly. They go, uh, well, I, I, I mean, you, I mean, you, and then they might say some semblance of, well, I mean, it's not as simple as that, or you don't know my mom or whatever. In other words, they haven't spent a lot of time thinking about what it is they want it to look like, but they've all the reasons why it's screwed up or dysfunctional. So if this man wants his dad to say he's proud of him and his dad has shown him for 48 years, for 62 years, for 85 years, for 110 years, it has not happened and therefore it's probably not going to happen. Why does he go to his dad and say, why don't you ever tell me you're proud of me? By the way, dad, in my one last letter, I'm going to ask you, and it doesn't have to be one last letter. I'm not trying to promote my work, just to be clear. But in, and, and, but in any format, dad, you know, I am 42 years old and I'm still waiting for you to tell me you're proud of me. And I need to tell you that not to put you under pressure to give me, you, you, uh, give me an insincere version of that, but I need to get it off my chest. Why can't we have those conversations? My dad never hugged me, never told me he loved me. And I decided in Vancouver airport years ago, I was going to go in for second base. And as he put out his hand to shake my hand as if we'd just done a real estate deal, I brushed past his hand and, hu and hugged him. And it was like hugging a corpse in a coffin. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what it is now? It's all hugs all the time because he wanted it too. He just didn't know how to attain it.
Right. So I was just about to say that at 27 years old, my dad had never used my first name. He had never given me a hug. He never said, I love you. So, and it was not anything that you'd want to hear coming from your dad as far as the names he did use. So at 27, I made a decision that I was either going to either never talk to him again, or we're going to change our relationship. So I did exactly what you said. I had a conversation with him. I said, Hey, I'd like you to call me by my name. He said, okay. And uh, <laughs> that was it. It was like, we had so much tension uh, prior to that for 27 years. Like, no, no, I love you. No hugs. Now we're great. Like, you know, it's such a great relationship and it just literally changed in an instant. Cause I would come into that relationship with tension with an expectation that he was going to be abrasive to me. And I would bring that relationship to him. Right. I would bring that, that um, expectation to the relationship as well. So just being able to change it completely shifted our relationship. So it's been, you know, 13 years now of uh, just an amazing connection. I mean, good, you know, good to great. Right. So it's definitely a real I, well, I, I deeply commend you and thank you for sharing that. And I think that's a great, a way better example than I could have given in terms of taking responsibility, ownership, and not being the victim. And, you know, one of the things I often say about, about forgiveness is that forgiveness is a, is, a, is a pretty decent gift you can give to somebody else by forgiving somebody else. And that's yeah. uh, one of the reasons why people don't forgive because they go, fuck, they, they've hurt me so much. I'm never going to forgive them. But, but forgiveness is towards somebody else is one of the greatest gifts you can give to yourself because the person that's carrying the anger, carrying the pain, carrying the blame is ourselves. And, you know, particularly when it comes to parents and siblings, is we can sit here waiting for that phone call to come where my dad finally says sorry, my mom finally says sorry for whatever they've done to build a better relationship. Or we can go after it ourselves because the conversation only changes when we change the conversation. Right. And it's exactly what you did. And I deeply commend you for that. Well done. So I used to say forgiveness. And now I'm curious your thoughts on this. And now I attach to acceptance because forgiveness still insinuates blame. Like they did something wrong, but in reality, they did the best they could. That's my perception. So there's a book that I highly suggest. I know you'll love. It's called Real Love by Greg Bear, And it's my most recommended book of probably the last three years. And it talks all about ultimately Getting to love requires acceptance of who you are and everything that's made you up to this point in your life. And that really shifted my perspective and allowed me to, I think, show up better for everyone in my life because there's no more blame. It's not like, oh, you're a bad dad, but I forgive you, right? It removes that. It's like, no, you just did the best you could, right? You did. You showed up with the best you were able to, with the skill set you had, the knowledge you had, and thank you. And so it's an, it's an acceptance. And for me, that's been a really uh, empowering way to come into the world. Yeah. I, I, I understand it, and I'm, I'm not going to disagree with it, but I do believe there's a place for uh, forgiveness and acceptance, um, sure. and I believe it's a, it's a combination. The challenge with acceptance is that we might have something that has been done to us by somebody else that is, some might say, wrong, inappropriate. It's where that person isn't perfect, and they did the best they could, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they didn't behave in a way that didn't serve us. And one of the lovely things about acknowledging, I often see this in parenting um, with a man or a woman who almost is re in re refusing to see that their parents hurt them in some capacity. Most, many people I work with would say to me, I didn't have any tr real trauma. And I go, well, what do you mean real trauma? They was well, next to Ben and John and Philip and Mary and Henry. I mean, I didn't have any real trauma. I go, great. Well, tell me about your life. And it turns out that their life has been pretty traumatic. Yep. And I actually believe that trauma in different capacities is necessarily more severe 
on a young person than the other. I think it's equally severe. The pain is the pain. It's it, what's done is different, but the but the outcome is is very very similar. And one of the things that people then jump to is they go, well, my dad did the best he could. And I said, I'm sure, I'm sure he did. But if we don't isolate the behavior, it's very hard for you to do a couple of things. One is to, to move beyond it and forgive and let go and accept it. And the second thing is it's, it then doesn't give you a reference point in terms of what's acceptable moving forward as a parent yourself. Because then we adapt this thing going, I hit my child if you don't believe in hitting or I do something else or I shout or scream or whatever it happens to be. And I go, well, I'm doing the best I could. Because that's the narrative we have. Now, I'm not trying to pick holes in what you said. I completely sure, no, that makes a lot of sense. I just do believe that sometimes it wasn't. And, and I tell you, it was a very wise man who said to me years ago, one way of separating our loyalty to the behaviors that didn't serve us is this beautiful statement, which took me a while to get my head around this. And this man sat in front of me and he opened up his glasses case and he took his glasses out of the case. And as he did so, he said, you can love the person. And he lifted up his glasses case with the glasses inside it. And then he opened it and he says, but you don't have to like the behavior. And I heard that. And excuse me, but I'm a little bit slow on occasion. And I couldn't get it. And I, and I heard it again six months later. And suddenly it was like, boom. And I was able to separate my behavior of my brother who wasn't very nice to me uh, for, for, you know, when I was a young kid um, and bullying and stuff like that. I was able to separate the behavior and I was able to say, I love this man, but I didn't like his behavior. And it allowed me to isolate the behavior and to process that in isolation. And then I was able to let go and forgive to some extent. But I do agree with you wholeheartedly on one thing. Way too many people come to me and go, oh, yeah, we can talk about that thing with my parents, my dad, my brother, whatever. But, um, oh, no, no, I've, I've, um, I've forgiven them. Uh, it's gone. I've, I've dealt with that. I, I did three sessions of therapy. Uh, it was online, 15 minutes each. I'm being a little bit uh, facetious here. And uh, it's done. It's gone. I go, great. Well, if it's so gone and there's no charge, I'd love to hear about it without the charge. Right. And you see them beginning to vibrate with anger. And then they get really decimated because they go, shit, I thought I dealt with that. And I go, no, no, you didn't deal with it. You let some of it go. You've denied the rest. And this is where acceptance comes in, where you, you then take it as part of your journey. And this is the way it is, the way it was, and therefore you can do something with it. So I think it's a combination of forgiveness and acceptance, which I think is a beautiful uh, combo. Yeah. And so one thing you said in there that I've taken on myself and I want the audience to hear it is like, I can love who I am without loving what I do or loving the things I've done. Right. So like just exactly what you said is like who I am is not the same as what I do. There's some actions and behaviors that I've done that I certainly don't love and I regret sometimes. Right. I'm like, I wish I didn't do that, but it doesn't change who I am. I think everyone out there needs to hear that. It's like loving yourself is is an essential part of thriving and, you know, obviously working toward doing the things that you want to do instead of things that maybe you shouldn't do is that, you know, part of the human experience. Yeah. So moving on, I want, I want to come back to um, how you explore your authenticity, because you said over the last couple of years, certainly since the last time we've talked, um, you said you've, you've, you feel like that you're the most authentic version of yourself. And I'm curious what that exploration looks like. Yeah. I, I just want to be clear. Um, uh, if that's what I said, it's probably not very accurate. And, and what I mean by that is, um, I suppose where I would say is I'm probably I'm more authentic now than I've ever been. Where I am in that journey, I don't know. And I don't think I'm meant to know. And, and the way I describe it is somebody asked me on an interview oh, two or three years ago, their first question. And I think it came across, I was trying to catch them out, which I wasn't. They, they come straight out of the, 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 the 
the, the blocks and said, uh, how are you so authentic? And I just said, well, with respect to making an assumption that I am, and that's not for me to decide. I don't think anyone on earth should assess themselves as, self of, uh, as authentic or, 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 or not necessarily, because I don't think we're the best judge of that. In fact, some might think this is negative thinking. I actually don't believe. I think this is a, a, a sense of, comes from a place of awareness, and that is, I'm, I'm, I'm always assuming I'm wearing masks of some sort, and the mask is a representation of, of, of an act, of a, of a hiding, of a pretending, whatever you want to say it is. How many I've left to remove, I genuinely don't know. I'm not sure I'll ever remove all of them. Maybe on my deathbed in, in 40 years from now or 50 years from now or 10 days from now, who the hell knows, I might remove the last one. Um, my job is to continue to remove them. We've, we had a, a very uh, beautiful man in our community, Alon, and he wrote a book recently, just came out last week, um, Even the Sidewalk Knew, I think it was about him coming out as a gay man with his wife, with his children and the, and the world. And he's just an amazing man. And, and through his own admission, he, he never imagined he'd write a book. And he did his one last talk and it got him in touch with not just his story, but the power of it. He delivered it at an event called MMT um, with my guidance um, and just supporting him, bringing the talk out. And then we invited him to go and write a one last book. And here he is with this amazing book. And he did all the work and it's not, it's not us. But I actually realized recently, and I wrote this, and I, I don't think I've shared this really publicly before, and that is, I think life is a whole series of coming outs. That we use this idea of coming out of the closet, and we've associated with sexuality. But I actually think all of us need to come out of the closet multiple times. And I think we're all hiding in a closet in some capacity. We're hiding what we really think about religion because we don't want our parents to know. We're hiding what we really think about parenting. We're hiding what we really think about intimacy and so on and so forth. And that's the way I frame it. So I never assume I'm authentic. I'm always curious about the masks I still have to wear. I'm not as concerned about what I'm saying in the world. The question I often ask me is, what am I not speaking into the world? What's the conversation What's the, here's a, here's a beautiful question and now because it's coming from me, because I think it's a beautiful question for us to consider. What's the most important conversation I'm simply not having. And I think at any given day, the answer to that question is probably at least one conversation with yourself and at least one other conversation with somebody close to you and maybe a conversation with the world. And if we don't come out of the closet and allow the world to see who we are, I don't think we fully live. I don't think we're at peace. And I think we go to our graves with significant life regrets. And statistically, the science shows us that we do. And I just think it's unnecessary. And again, we're not priming the next generation of young people to be the same because most parents want their kids to be happy and authentic. But are we actually doing it ourselves? And I think that's that's a refreshing question rather than a question of judgment, a refreshing question to consider and ask ourselves. So I got to ask the question, if I know that I'm going to have a conversation with someone and I don't anticipate it going well, I don't anticipate it being received well, do you have a suggestion as for a process on how to step into that? Because I guarantee everyone's got a conversation they want to have and they're like, there's no way I'm going to have that conversation for fear of how it will be received. So if I go and deliver that conversation, even if I go in there with the most true intent of like not going, you know, daggers out, you know, I'm coming 
with my, my dagger away, it could still be received in a negative way that could potentially make it worse, both for me and for them. I'm curious yeah. what your approach is. Yeah, that's a brilliant question. And I and I, it goes back to the point I made earlier on about the speed in which we have these conversations. When I do a workshop with people and they begin to realize something and I'll, I'll, I'll go to how they might have the conversation in just a moment. But let's just say they realize there's a conversation they need to have. There's a there's an expectation within themselves that this needs, we need to knock this out of the park. We need to just get this done, like take it off the list. And I go, no, no, you're just becoming aware of the conversation. You're becoming aware of the person you want to have it with, and you're becoming aware of the dynamics within that. You've already jumped the gun and made an assumption it's going to be a negative outcome, which it might be. So you need to sit with it for a period of time. You need to be very clear in what's your intention. Is your intention to dump it out of your body, your intention to get the person back, or your intention to clear the air? And whatever that intention is, is going to drive the conversation and the energy. And often we don't, we have a secret intention. And the secret intention is we want to be vulnerable in the hope that that person's vulnerable back. John, I'm sorry. Oh, Jesus, Philip, I'm so glad you said that because I'm even more sorry than you are. No, 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 I'm sorrier than you. No, no, I'm more sorry than you. And we want that kind of dynamic. And we have to relinquish and let go as much of the expectation as possible in order to have a very real conversation. And a conversation does not need to be two-way in the traditional sense. So one of the ways I often ask people to do it is to do a letter. Because when we think about having a conversation with somebody close to us, like a, a parent or a brother or whatever, we often have a relationship where we feel that we can't fully say what we want to say. We have a history of, of being uh, manipulated to some extent where we're speaking and that person throws something back at us straight away. And a letter is a beautiful way of being heard, being able to say what you want to say without that person having the opportunity to interrupt you. But when I work with a client, I'll often ask them to send me the letter. And there's different types of letters. So one is, uh, there's a little exercise I do. If you've got a, somebody, a, a, a challenging relationship in your life, and this person you feel has hurt you, right or wrong, whether that's true or not, I feel there's three versions of that letter. There's the letter of absolute let go and say exactly all the nastiest things you can possibly muster towards that person. Use language that's going to surprise yourself and you will be surprised how angry you get, which tells you how much resentment you hold towards that relationship. Write that, get it out of your system and then throw that in the, in the, in the garbage, delete it, whatever. Write the second letter. The second letter, let's just say it's towards a dad, will probably be also charged. It'll say something like, and you, you don't even know it. It's so, so simple. You'll start the letter, hey, dad, I know you were never really around when I was, you know, when I was a teenager, but I want to reconcile our relationship. And I think you're amazing and I love you. Your dad reading that possibly or probably is not going to see any of the rest of it. He's just going to go, oh, yes, yeah, so here's another attack. It's just a bit more passive. So you get rid of that letter. And the third letter is the one where perhaps you go, dad, despite what's happened in the past, despite your perspective and my perspective, I have become very clear that I wanted to develop a relationship with you. I'm not sure if that's something you want. If it is, I'd love to talk to you about it. I'm just making that up, right? Yep. But it's a beautiful way of being heard potentially. And you have to let go of what you might receive. Otherwise, it's a conditional letter. You're writing the letter in order to receive something. And even if you get a negative response, if you speak your truth, there's a letting go-ness. There's a, there's a peace. There's an energy that comes from that. And I had a lady recently, her father died. She just emailed me last week. And she was reluctant, but she wrote him a one last letter. 
And she said, my God, I did not expect him to die. And she said, I'm so grateful. I said what I said in that letter. And it was a letter of pure love, even though she had some challenges around, but she was able to let them go and accept them, write a letter of love. And her dad passed away a couple of months later. Wow. Philip, always an incredible pleasure and incredible honor and incredible wisdom imparted on us. Thank you very much. Um, where can our audience go to learn more from you or potentially work with you? Yeah, philipmckernan.com and um, onelasttalk.com. And thank you so much for having me on. And I really appreciate your honesty in, in the conversation as well. It's uh, These conversations are, are, it takes you know the energy of both of us here. So thank you for allowing me here today and giving me that privilege. And thank you for uh, for holding space. And um, hopefully if it makes difference in, in one person's life today or in the future, that's that's all I hope for. All right. I know it will. Thanks, Phil. Thank you. Take care. Bye. That's a wrap, ladies and gents, boys and girls. Thank you for being here. What did you think? Philip McKernan is a very, very wise man. I really love his conversation. His events all over the world have become renowned for helping people change their life and change their direction. And I just love the guy's energy. He's just hes just an honest, seemingly authentic guy. I know we didn't really like that word, but seemingly very authentic. And I think anyone who has a desire to help others and actually is following through in it and living in that is someone I want to hang around with. I don't know about you guys. And speaking of someone that I want to hang around with, a friend of mine and someone that I respect tremendously, Brian Johnson is offering you guys an incredible deal. Optimize.me slash muscle, get hooked up with a free membership. And I promise you, this is thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars worth of value in this website. And, and if you're someone who ultimately wants to maybe become a coach, or maybe you want to learn how to a process to step into the greatest version of yourself, and this is psychologically start to end, understand philosophy and start to understand life optimization, overcome your own challenges, help other people overcome their own challenges. The optimize.me coaching program is absolutely something you're going to want to pick up. Many of my mentorship students took the course and they all raved about it. We did it together. It was truly, truly great. Optimize.me slash muscle. Thanks guys. Appreciate you. Have a great day. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to subscribe, leave us a review. Let me know if I talk too much, you can tell me that too. Uh, but I appreciate you guys listening. Thank you very much for being here. Have a great day. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.